We talk about creating a wallet or creating another address or creating an account. But the funny thing is, all these wallets are already here. Yeah. You just pick one. But the point is, there are more wallets than atoms in the universe. So okay. the chance of actually picking one that already has been picked by someone else is mathematically impossible. It's practically impossible. Yeah. Let's say like that. You buy Bitcoin and you buy them, for example, on an exchange. Then you don't really own these Bitcoin. You have an IOU and the exchange promises to you to send you your coins if you ask, mm -hmm. but they can go bankrupt. FTX went from a $32 billion company to bankruptcy in the matter of just four days or so. Sam Bankman-Fried is stepping down as CEO, the 30-year-old. Hello and welcome to DeFi, probably the only crypto podcast that was never sponsored by FTX. My name is Jonas and today on the show we're going to talk about how you can store your crypto safely. Not on an exchange, but on a wallet that you control. And I couldn't have wished for a better guide to bring us back to the basics of self-custody. Staticus is the co-founder and product lead of the hardware wallet Bitbox. He is also a passionate Bitcoiner who represents the values and ideology of the early crypto OGs. So I used this opportunity to ask and discuss with Staticus about some of the common criticisms of Bitcoin. We talk also about proof of work versus proof of stake and where he sees the promises of Bitcoin going forward. We have recorded this conversation before the FTX collapse and I think you'll find that the principles of not your keys, not your coins and don't trust, verify have never rung truer as all of us have experienced during the last weeks. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Staticus, but before we start, a quick word from our sponsor. CryptoValley.jobs is a job board where engineers, designers, analysts, traders and community builders can find cool crypto jobs. Full disclosure, I run this job board. So if you're looking for a job or you want to advertise an open position, please go and visit CryptoValley.jobs. And while you're there, make sure to sign up on the email lists so you're always informed when new jobs are posted on the platform. That's CryptoValley.jobs. And now let's start the show. Well, on October 31st, 2008, the Bitcoin white paper was released. This was now 14 years ago. And we are sitting here in your office. Did you have a party here or how do you celebrate such a big moment? This year, we didn't. We're a remote first company, so we're not partying every night in our offices, but it's certainly a very important day to remember. But to be honest, there's like a Bitcoin holiday almost every week, okay. <laughs> the pizza day and white paper day and mm. all the stuff that goes on. But Bitcoiners like to party and like to remember how everything started. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like festivities in a, in a religion a little bit. Exactly. And we can go into that later. Well, we haven't even mentioned your name yet. Staticus, thank you for coming on the podcast. Sure. Pleasure. I usually ask people if they would meet somebody very important at a party or something, how would they introduce themselves? Now I'm asking you, if you would meet Satoshi Nakamoto, him, her or them, how would you introduce yourself to kind of signal that you are, in, you know, interesting to that person as well? I don't think that I'm that interesting to Satoshi, but to be honest, I'm also not sure. Of course, I would want to ask them many questions, but I don't also don't think that Satoshi is very important to Bitcoin anymore. Mm -hmm. So I would probably just introduce myself as Staticus, working in Bitcoin, having the time of my life, building what I truly believe in and where my heart is. I've worked at large companies before, but doing what I do now is really like nothing compares to that. And for Satoshi, I think his or they or her greatest accomplishment, of course, after birthing Bitcoin is probably to disappear. Mm -hmm. That's like so fundamental for Bitcoin itself to remove the last tech vector on a societal level. Mm -hmm. So that I'd probably be a bit disappointed to actually meet them <laughs> at a conference. Okay. No, I get that. It's very interesting that you go into the, already in the security thinking 
I think that's a very Bitcoiner mindset, right? I mean, you just mentioned attack factor, etc. And it obviously has also to do with your work that is all about security and mm -hmm. how to secure your crypto or your Bitcoin. And I think I would like to already go a little bit in this direction. So crypto Bitcoin, what is the importance here? What is the focus on? So I'm a co-founder of Shift Crypto. We produce the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It's made in Switzerland. We're a Swiss company. And what the Bitbox does is allow you to keep your private keys for Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies secure, but also accessible. Because if it's only secure, you can basically write it on a piece of paper and bury it somewhere, but then they're no longer accessible. So the main use case of a hardware wallet is to keep the keys secure, but also keep your Bitcoin or crypto usable. Otherwise, what's the point? And in that regard, there's not much difference between Bitcoin and other things. It's cryptographic currencies. There's a lot of fancy math going on. I'm not the hardcore engineer here, but we do have people from ETH, like the university in Zurich that studied mathematics and cryptography and stuff like that. But what then follows from that is what the actual use case is for the mm -hmm. different currencies, right? And I think there the paths try to diverge from the actual goals of, for, for example, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana or Dogecoin or whatever. Yeah, yeah. My impression is, you know, reading about you, following you also and seeing your talks, etc., that this company has a very soft spot for Bitcoin. I have the feeling people are here are Bitcoiners first. Would you say that's true? Not for all of us. So for me, I think that's definitely the case. I'm mostly interested in Bitcoin, but that's just because what I value is more the libertarian side. I'm not against banks, but I definitely want to keep central banks in check. So for me, it's all about Bitcoin being money, being a competitive currency against fiat and keeping politicians and unelected officials in check. But that's just my personal yeah. agenda. Of course, I would say because we have been founded by Jonas Schnelli, which is a Bitcoin core maintainer and Douglas Buckham, you met him earlier, he's our current CEO. They're definitely coming from the Bitcoin space as well. Mm -hmm. But we do have people that are like more into Ethereum or other currencies. So our products don't necessarily reflect our Bitcoin only ethos, although we do have a Bitcoin only edition for people that already know they only want to keep Bitcoin secure. And how did you actually end up liking Bitcoin so much or crypto? What is your journey? I can't really say because it took like many touch points. I'm an IT engineer, so I have the background to actually understand the white paper on more or less, I would say. But even for me, it was like, okay, Bitcoin cannot work anyway. And then Bitcoin, well, maybe interesting, but it's funny money. It's magic internet money mm -hmm. until I actually realized it is working already. And then for me, it was like, okay, Bitcoin is cool, but it's, it's also a bit boring. Um, <laughs> so then, wow, Ethereum, then wow, all these coins. Like I actually tried to take part in several ICOs back in the days, mm -hmm. but the network was so congested, I never even got my coins. But when I then started to ask myself, okay, why does this project really need its own coin? Usually it was more of a marketing and a, like a raising money thing and not essential to the project itself. So for me personally, I came full circle. Mm -hmm. I don't call myself a Bitcoin maxi. I don't like that word. I think there's different use cases. For me, it's just Bitcoin that interests me because it has a very specific use case. But I'm sure there are other use cases for Ethereum and other coins. But that's just not where my interests lie. My claim to fame in the early days was that I probably have the first guide how to run your own Bitcoin node on a Raspberry Pi, which is now somehow standard in the communities. That sounds for people who are, you know, like crypto curious, but are not very deep <laughs> in, no. in security, etc. sounds already a little bit confusing because they, mm -hmm. they probably want a hardware wallet exactly because they don't want to think so much about that stuff. They just want their coins secure. Do you know a little bit something about your the clients? Who are these people? Well, we do know where we send devices to. 
although we don't keep any locks and in our shop everything is anonymized after 30 days, but we have no clue about the economic activities or how many coins or how many different coins our customers have on their Bitbox, and that's by design. We don't want to know that because in the end it's about freedom and sovereignty and we want to empower individuals to hold their own coins without compromising their privacy. Mm -hmm. But could you track that? As long as our customers would continue to use our own servers, of course, they need to reveal a little bit about their holdings. Namely, they will check what is the balance of different addresses and stuff like that. But we don't keep any locks and mm -hmm. we don't track that, although we could. But because we make it so easy to even remove our own servers, I think if you care about that, you're able to do it. Mm -hmm. But of course, as you mentioned, this is already like very deep down the rabbit hole. That's of course the same for every other manufacturer, be it Ledger or Trezor or whatever. They all run their own full nodes. And that's still way better than leaving your coins on an exchange. Because mm -hmm. then you're not only trusting that exchange to run their nodes and accept coins for you, but they actually control your keys. And you basically need to ask them for permission to get your actual coins back. Yeah. That's the famous saying, not your keys, not your coins, right? Your company and you are a big advocate of keeping your own yes. coins safe. But can you explain, like in easy terms, what is actually a hardware wallet? What do you actually keep on there? I mean, for a lot of people, they probably think, you know, literally they have coins on this device. And if they lose the device, their coins are gone. And I cannot blame them. But there's obviously a lot of misconceptions. What are the biggest misconceptions that you have to address and that people are getting wrong with, mm -hmm. with hardware wallets and crypto safety in general? I think starting with the name of wallet is already a misnomer because it's not really a wallet where your coins are kept. It's more like a, a keychain. So you do have your coins that you own. So let's keep it simple and keep it in Bitcoin. You buy Bitcoin and you buy them, for example, on exchange, then you don't really own this Bitcoin. You have an IOU and the exchange promises to you to send you your coins if you ask, but mm -hmm. they can go bankrupt and they may might be tangible to like regulation. So that can be complicating things. And they but might not even have the, the maybe, Bitcoin, right? You maybe don't it's even fractional know. reserve. Maybe they don't even have as many coins as they have IOUs. So that's the same with gold, right? Yeah. You can have physical gold, but it's well known that there is about eight times as much paper gold in ETFs as physical gold on Earth. So as soon as everybody would actually try to get their gold physical, that's like a pyramid scheme that would like just collapse. And if we're not careful, that can be the same with Bitcoin. If everybody keeps Bitcoin on exchange, who knows how many they actually have, right? You yeah. just see a database entry in your browser there's no guarantee that your Bitcoin are actually there. But let's say they are and you, are. you withdraw them to your own Bitcoin address, mm -hmm. which is made, generated by a wallet, be it on your smartphone or a hardware wallet. They actually transfer the Bitcoin to this address. Mm -hmm. And that is recorded on the blockchain. And the ownership of that address is actually defined by who technically defined, not in a legal sense, but in a technical sense, who controls the keys to spend them again. So everybody can look at the address, but mm -hmm. you cannot spend my coins because you don't know my private keys that are needed to actually transfer the coins out of this address to another address. Mm -hmm. That's totally fine. If you have like a few hundred bucks on your smartphone, in a wallet, you can download from an app store for free. That's totally fine and very useful. But let's say you have like more, like your life savings. That's probably not wise to keep all that on your phone. Not because you could lose the phone, because you can make a backup and you can restore that. But just because the phone is not really a secure environment. And there are private keys that really must be kept secret. Mm -hmm. And you can have the most secret app. If it runs on an insecure platform, it can always be compromised in a variety of ways. Yeah. 
and the private keys, I would like to dive a little bit into mm -hmm. the private keys without getting too technical. I liked your talk that you gave where you work with images and with metaphors, etc. But so what actually is important is the private keys is all that matters, right? I mean, you don't even need to know your public key. You only need this one super long like a mix of letters or numbers. Exactly. So it's not even the private keys. It's actually called a seed. So this is your master secret. Yeah. And this is what you, for example, also back up with 24 words. If you write them down on a piece of paper, that's just a different representation of your master secret. Mm -hmm. And from that secret, the wallet can derive everything else. So a huge amount of different coins, different private keys, different public keys, different addresses, all that is reproducible. So if you just import the seed into a different wallet, it can just recalculate everything again, an yeah. unlimited amount of public and private keys, addresses, all the coins, etc. And cross blockchains. Yes. So there's just like a coin number in the derivation of the public and private keys. And one is Bitcoin, another one is Ethereum, another one is you name it, mm -hmm. there's like mm -hmm. a limitless. And so these 24 words, this is just an abstraction that makes it more easy for human beings to remember, right? Exactly. How are they called? You can call it a recovery words, seed phrase. There's no really technical term for that. Yeah. I think I've seen online people arguing that you should call them like secret phrase or something, uh -huh. because then you know you have to keep them secret, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> but okay. But these 24 words, so you don't even mm -hmm. need all the letters of the words yes. to... Can you shine a little bit of light on that? Because I wasn't aware of that and was like, mm -hmm. wow, you don't. You need like basically half of the word only. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can take a step back yeah, yeah. and make a distinction between the wallet and the backup first. Mm -hmm. Because as I mentioned earlier, the wallet is to keep your private keys or the seed, if you want, secret, but also usable. And that means there's software involved. You need to have a user interface. You need to interact with it. And this is why a hardware wallet is a dedicated device, which is secure. And we can talk about that later. But of course, dedicated electronics device, that can break. You can lose it. I don't know if hardware wallets are, is even starting up in 50 years. You don't know, right? Yeah. Maybe there's no USB-C anymore. Mm -hmm. There's so much stuff that can go wrong. So this is really like, keep it secure for everyday use. And the second really important part is your backup. And this is for long-term storage, but really only for storage, not to keep it usable, because you cannot do anything with these 24 words without importing them back into a wallet first. Yeah. But you can make a backup of your seed phrase and with any medium you like. You could back up with Twitter emojis if you want to. It's just <laughs> not really standardized, but mm. it's just information. You can encode it in any way you want. And because like, if you have like the basic computer information, which is probably just like ones and zeros, that would be really, really hard for humans to write down without making errors. And one error would probably lead to you to a totally different and pretty much surely an empty wallet. So that's not a good idea. And this is why the information is encoded into English words. Mm -hmm. It can be 12 words, can be 24 words. And these words actually also contain a checksum. So the wallet can know if one word is out of place or switched or wrong. It can detect that it's actually wrong, which is okay. also very important. So if you check your 24 words, the wallet can tell you, no, you made a mistake. Ah, okay. So it's just to help you to say, okay, it's kind of right, but or why would it not just say nothing you know, or like not work? Because if you really need to make sure that you write down your backup correctly, so you basically write down the words. And what we do is then we have a quiz on the device itself that you need to select the words after that, all of them. But it's very quick because it just gives you like a choice of three words or something like that. Yeah. You just need to pick the right one. And with that, if you pass that check, you know that you actually wrote down everything correctly. But if you try to restore it and you make a mistake, the wallet that imports these words can tell you that you probably make a typo. 
which okay. is very helpful because otherwise you simply don't know and you're in an empty wallet and you think somebody stole your coins. Wait a second, but if you make a mistake, like is there always a wallet there or could there also be no wallet? I know what you mean because, for example, we talk about creating a wallet or creating another address or creating an account. But the funny thing is, all these wallets are already here. Yeah. You just pick one. But the point is there are more wallets than atoms in the universe. So okay. the chance of actually picking one that already has been picked by someone else is mathematically impossible. It's practically impossible. Yeah. Let's say like that. I would like to dive a little bit deeper with this image because I think that's so crazy to think about that. Because you have like a lot of people will think, okay, you have these super powerful computers that do mining. They guess a lot of words and you can check so many things in a short time of mm -hmm. like in a second you could check hundreds of thousands of addresses right mm -hmm. and if you have an even more powerful computer and you dedicate a lot of time to it why don't you just calculate all day long until you find an address that has not the balance zero mm -hmm. and i think you already described that now it's almost like shooting into the sky and trying to hit the atom because in the whole universe of atoms only a handful have even something on, on their wallets. That's basically how it is. But it is theoretically possible, but it's just practical. Practically it's impossible. impossible, yes. And let me quickly think. Is it like, I don't know, what other metaphor would be good? Like throwing a dart into an ocean and trying to hit a sand corn. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just come up with ideas to, because it doesn't seem to be so hard to guess 24 words or even 12 words correctly, right? So... This is where I think human brains really break down because we think linearly, but security with each additional word raises exponentially. And humans are incapable of understanding how exponential growth actually works. That's the same like one rise on the first check chessboard field. Yeah. And then let's double. just like 64 times doubling a rice corn, mm -hmm. but you will end up with like covering whole China in rice. Yeah, It's like infeasible for us to understand how exponential growth works. Mm -hmm. What we know at the moment, even eight words are good enough to be secure right now. And now you can imagine that actually there's a list of words, 2048 words. There's not like, it's not like just like random words. It's a list. And every word you add basically multiplies it with 2048 so nine words are like 2,048 times more keys. Mm -hmm. Ten words are like, it's always to the power of. And that's incredible growth in numbers. You cannot start imagining how big that stuff is. So it's like when you say, well, let's go back to the rice board, which a lot of people probably mm -hmm. know the story. Instead of you double it, each time you go one more field forward with the rice corn, the first one is 2048 <laughs> Eight, Exactly. And then that number times, okay, so it becomes super fast. Yeah, you, you cannot even it's wrap like, your head like around basically it. Basically one, two thousand, probably, I don't yeah. know. And then already you, your calculator has, exactly. doesn't even show anything anymore. Exactly. <laughs> You're already out of numbers. Yeah. And... I mean, a lot of people have heard about quantum computers, etc. that this could be kind of like the end of cryptography. And I have no idea about that stuff. But give us Sarah, like, the short answer. Is that really a concern? I don't really know, to be honest. There are much smarter people trying to estimate the threat of that. To be honest, I don't think Bitcoin would be the first target. If a quantum computer is here, mm -hmm. all military encryption would break down. Every cryptographic primitive in the world, including the whole web traffic, everything would break down. And I'm not sure if somebody would compromise this secret of having that much power by attacking Bitcoin. Yeah. But from what I understand, it's very, very unlikely and decades out, if at all. Mm -hmm. okay. And of course, it's fixable. There are post-quantum encryption. It's just not easy. I mean, encrypting something is infinitely easier than to break it, right? Yes. Because it's like scrambling an egg. After you have the scrambled egg, you cannot just make it back to internet exactly. very, very easily. Yeah, I think that gives a good impression of how safe Bitcoin is and other crypto projects as well, obviously. They all build on the same principles. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, if you look around every day, 
hundreds of millions of crypto is stolen. What mm -hmm. are in your day-to-day -day life, what do you see? What are the attack vectors that people actually should care about? So what we've talked about is just the cryptographic part, which is very, very secure, but it's not the only part that needs to be secure. So what I usually try to explain is if you imagine you have like a balloon that you need to keep that balloon that you blow up to a certain size, you need to protect that balloon. And you need to cover the whole surface of the whole balloon from an attacker. But the attacker only needs to find one little spot where to put a little pin in and the whole thing explodes. And I think that's the same with security when it comes to cryptocurrencies. So the cryptographic part is one thing, but of course there's computer code involved that can contain bugs. This is also why, for example, we have a Bitcoin-only edition, just because it contains less code. Less code means less attack surface, less external dependencies. But there are also attack vectors that are not technical at all, like social attacks, like people suing someone into submission just by misusing the courts to create a huge amounts of cost for some individuals and shut up critics, stuff like that happens already every day. And I think if we want to build a society that can rely on cryptocurrencies, and for me, Bitcoin in particular, I think all these needs, we need to be aware of all mm. these tech vectors. Okay. And now shifting gears a little bit towards Bitcoin in general and, you know, how people think about mm -hmm. it and what the vision is for it and, you know, a lot of people now, we are now in a bear market and we have seen Bitcoin dropping from like $69,000 to around $20,000 right now. And they are criticizing Bitcoin because it was supposed to be, I mean, actually the narrative has shifted over time, right? In the beginning, it was a peer-to-peer -peer payment system. Then people said, no, no, it's actually a store of value and, you know, like an inflation hedge, etc. And that doesn't seem to be true right now. How do you personally think about this the criticisms or what Bitcoin actually is? So I think it's maybe the narrative has changed over time by the community, but also the narrative of critics always changes. They always point to something that is currently not working as they claim somebody other has claimed. And if you really look at it, Bitcoin is working exactly as intended from a technological perspective. I think it's the only blockchain that actually works today in production. It has a use case, it's money, it's hard money. It never promised to be anything else. It works peer to peer, it works as cash. But of course, to really become like a mainstream money, that's more of a social aspect. That's not something you can force with technology that needs time, that needs people to believe in. Mm -hmm. And I'm an IT engineer. For me, for example, it's really essential that Bitcoin is built in layers. So we do have a settlement layer, the blockchain, which is super conservative as it should be. There's no other blockchain that I know of where I can say for sure how many coins are issued and I can actually connect with my current client, for example, in 20 years. That's the promise of Bitcoin. You buy one Bitcoin today, you will be able to access it in 50 years. And you know, there's not going to be a central committee that just like prints more than the 21 million Bitcoin. That's the promise that has been kept all the time. So what I'm hearing is, because the question is, what is Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. And you were just saying... Okay, it's a thing that works very well and is very secure, but we didn't talk so much about like, what should the thing do, right? What is, because it's a technology and it will work, right? It's like a door that will always open and close and we can guarantee that. Mm -hmm. But what is then the I think that's the, the that's, vision for that's Bitcoin? That's the sweet thing of Bitcoin. Bitcoin just is. There's no one who defines or decides what it is. Bitcoin is just what it is. Mm. And... We in the first world, in Switzerland, for example, we don't need an additional payment method. Why should we? We are overbanked 
everybody has like three cards, credit cards, debit cards, everything. We have Twint. We have other methods mm. that are super easy and for everyday use. We don't need Bitcoin to pay in retail stores. Of course we can, but why should we? But there are people in the world that don't have access to banks, that don't have access to any sort of financial services. So for them, that's actually a use case. It's not for us, but it's for them. For me personally, it's more something to like a long-term store of value. I don't mind the volatility because my mindset is like 10, 15, 50 years. In 50 years, either it's really, really valuable or zero. <laughs> okay. And so it's it's a me, bet. It's a bet because it it's, bet, it's, it's not it's, really a store of value if you think it could be zero. Everything is a bet. I would say in the likelihood of the euro no longer be around in 50 years is real. So everything is built on trust. And I think Bitcoin needs the least trust of all. It just works. And of course, it can fail. But the bet is really asymmetric. Because at most, I can lose everything I have in here, like 100%. But the upside potential is much more than 100%. Of course, I wouldn't keep everything I have in Bitcoin. But for me, I personally believe that it will work. So I probably have a bit more of exposure. But if you're just like interested in dabbling a little bit, then just keep a little bit in it and see if it works for you. Mm -hmm. So there is a high, let's say, a technical certainty, but then there's like this uncertainty in all the other aspects, right? Yes. If it will work. I find that interesting because the other day, and I'm not as deep as into mm -hmm. Bitcoin as you, obviously, but I listened to an interesting podcast with Udi mm -hmm. and Eric Wall about Bitcoin maximalism and why it has failed. And they were basically saying, yeah, a lot, a lot of bad things probably about Bitcoin, about Bitcoin people and failure of to innovate, also the Lightning Network kind of being a failure, etc. And you said before you're a Bitcoin minimalist. Let's go a little bit in that direction. What is a Bitcoin minimalist? How do you position yourself? And have you heard of that episode as well? Or Yeah, I mean, I know Udi personally, and he's a great troll. He <laughs> likes to stir up shit. Eric Wall as well. They do have a, quite a bit of knowledge, but I certainly don't agree with them in, on social media. I yeah. might agree over a beer, but not when they're on Twitter or in a podcast. For me, I think being a Bitcoin minimalist comes out of what I'm interested in, even if there's no Bitcoin. So I'm interested in personal freedom, in not being told what to do and what not to do. I'm interested in like just having certainty without needing to trust institutions. And if you value that, I think there's Bitcoin and nothing else. Because everything else has a foundation or some sort of influential people is to some sort like centralized in infrastructure or anything else. I don't want to belittle other projects. It's just not what I'm interested in. For me, Bitcoin is money. Everything else is fintech. Fintech is cool if you're interested. It's more like IT projects in a venture capital state. Most of them will fail. But if you pick the right one, you can probably make a lot of money. But I'm just not interested in reproducing the system that we already have. I want a free speech money, a money that is outside of control of governments and national banks that can be accepted by people that are like under tyrants, like yeah. activists, privacy focused people. And that's really what Bitcoin is. I get it. I know the narrative and also following it. But I have had like inroads with people that have had a very close-minded mindset mm -hmm. about other projects, dismissing all of them as shit coins, etc. And I had sometimes a feeling it was a little bit almost like a religion and, you know, like, or some people also say it's, a, it's kind of a cult. But how do you, you know, like, I'm not saying that you are in a cult, obviously. I'm just trying to understand how do you feel about that and if you think that's true or not, you know? Yeah, I think discussion is very important. And if you just repeat your own arguments over and over, like, as you mentioned, like being in a cult without actually knowing why you came to that conclusion, it can become a religion. And that's, for me, that's just a lazy way of thinking. Mm. But what you also need to understand is that the criticism of Bitcoin 
everything has been criticized a hundred times already over the years. It's just like so exhausting mm. to be confronted with lazy criticism all the time. And that, I think, can breed lazy arguments from Bitcoiners as well. Okay. Because you're just... And one thing also that's important, it's much easier to criticize something than to actually refute it. So that can almost be a DDoS attack, technically speaking. It's super easy to put everything in question, yeah. but actually taking that criticism and refuting it like really takes a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. I see that. Let's go quickly over some mm -hmm. of the hardcore criticism sure. and some of them I share, some of them I don't. I already also know some of the answers, but let's go over them. I had, what came to my mind is obviously number one criticism, energy, yes. like Bitcoin. And I think that is true, uses a lot of energy, yes. right? People say it's wasteful. And nowadays in the times of where we are right now, war, climate change, etc., it's just stupid to use proof of work. How do you feel about that? So I think people that just like attack Bitcoin due to its energy consumption, most of them, or let's say the cri criticism is not very specific. So first, I would say most of the critics don't see value at all in Bitcoin. So every energy that you spend is too much energy. If you see value in Bitcoin, then the question becomes, okay, how much energy is, is enough or is good enough? Is it put to use? And then you need to understand what that, for me, like the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, it's just like different beasts. Bitcoin could never work with proof of stake because that's just not how it was born. And it has totally different security assumptions. So there are so many additional attack vectors and complexity that you need to consider when building something on proof of stake. It's just something totally different. So what these critics actually say is that they know what Bitcoin is today, but they think like a completely different Bitcoin would be better. But of course, that's not what they say, but it's what they actually say. And then something else that is also really important to understand is that the energy consumption, like as a topic to explore, is actually very complicated. And that complexity is never represented in these criticism. So are we talking about energy or are we talking about a CO2 output? Are we talking about what kind of energy are we talking about? Is it like peak energy that is... I've been working in the energy industry before. So I know that the most valuable energy, like electrical energy, is coming out of your socket at home when you need it. So the place and the time matters a lot. The same energy can be totally useless if nobody's there to consume it. Bitcoin as an industry has like the highest amount of renewable energies, like of all industries like 50 to 70%, which I agree is not high enough, but I think we will get there. And the problem is that then if you say, okay, it's renewable energy, so it's not about CO2, but then you're taking away this energy from somebody else, right? Yeah. But that's also not true because Bitcoin only needs super cheap energy and the cheapest energy is when there's no one else to buy it. If there's actual demand, it's already too expensive for mm -hmm. Bitcoin. Basically, energy, they would go wasted anyways. People exactly. go there and build their mining farms there. I've heard that. But just quickly to address quickly the proof of work, proof mm -hmm. of stake, because you said like the beast, it's born with proof of work, etc. Ethereum has been born with proof of work as well and has recently done the swap over to proof of stake, but it was always intended to be. Mm -hmm. It seems to be that most projects or actually 99.9% .9 newer projects after Ethereum they are putting all their eggs in, in proof of stake. And they must have come to the conclusion that it's a better system. I'm not now saying that it is. And when we're talking about Bitcoin changing over, that doesn't seem even to be a thinkable option. Because I think I've seen people doing that. I think even the, the Bitcoin Swiss CEO tweeted that once or said it or something. And obviously he was attacked by Bitcoiners. I mean, Why is that unthinkable? The good thing is that it's not the community that decides. It's the markets how they value what, if you have a hard fork, like with Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin survived, Bitcoin Cash is like, I don't know, almost zero. So markets very clearly said, we don't see any value in that. Mm -hmm. And actually the same happened. There is a Bitcoin proof of stake. 
Oh, really? There's a hard fork that took Bitcoin, switched it to proof of stake. Of course, it's more like a money grab thing, probably not like very serious, but that immediately died because people just don't care about it. Yeah. If you have a money that needs to be resistant to nation state attack, you cannot build that with proof of stake. Because what you see at the moment, and I'm not claiming to be an expert in that, but from a like an observing perspective, with Ethereum today, it's not easy to become like a proper staker. You need to have like, I think, 32 with ETH or something. So it's quite a... Yeah, 32 ETH. So not everybody can just like stake. So you need to some like tell somebody else to stake in your name. And of course, what's the easiest thing to do? To leave your ETH on an exchange and get like some passive revenue from the exchange. And what happens then? Proof of stake always has this centralization pressure. The people that already have the most money get the new money. And that's basically what we want to break out of. So now all the big institutions that are staking, there are legal companies. I think most of them are in the US. Now they're fully captured by like restrictions and blacklists and all of that. So I'm not saying this is the case today, but there's a real danger that Ethereum just becomes like controlled by the US. But isn't that the same like decentralization with on Bitcoin? Because a miner has to put in much more than 32 ETH, right? Worth of equipment. And it's also professionalized. It's also like a couple of mining pools that are, and even to get the hardware, which it's impossible for me to be a miner. It's impossible for you probably even to be a miner. I wouldn't say so. A good miner to I make mean, profit. The main thing, if you could, can be a miner or not, is where you live, if you have cheap energy. I know quite a few people who mine at home with one or two miners. You can buy one for like a thousand bucks or so. And that's not the big investment. The big investment is the ongoing cost of electricity. And that's the point. So if but you, they don't make any profit with, with that. Of course miner. they do. They it's, do. It's very reliable profit because you, as a single miner, you just become part of a mining pool and all the blocks that the whole pool finds as an aggregate are split down. All the revenues are split down to the individual mm -hmm. miners. So you'll get not a lot, but very consistent revenue. But that still means that you as a miner can switch mining pools every time. Yeah. So the mining pool has very limited but power. Probably you use more electricity than you earn. That's what I'm saying. That depends where you live. Like in, Swi like in Switzerland? In instance. Switzerland, probably, yes. We yeah. have very high energy costs. But I know someone who actually has like a few miners to mine Bitcoin and heat his house. Or like with <laughs> greenhouses, like yeah. stuff like that, that actually works. But taking a step back, I find it a very like good image to see that we have something very virtual, Bitcoin as a virtual currency. It's like just in cyberspace, but through proof of work, it's actually anchored in reality. There's an ongoing cost in the real world to produce blocks and to secure the network. Once you cut that anchor, switch to proof of stake, then it becomes some sort of a perpetual motion machine without any connection to the real world. That can work, but if it goes out of sync, there's nothing you can do. It can just like float away like a balloon and have consequences which you can no longer control. Wow, that's, I never heard that one. That's interesting. Okay. But doesn't that mean, like, it's all about incentives, right? And yes. I think Proof of Stake ha is focusing on game theory and incentives. And as much as cryptography is nothing rooted in the real world per se, right? It's, mathematics it's, it's is the, mathematics. It's the exactly. fundamental of physics and the real world. That's like the law of the universe. Okay, yeah. But it's not like, so is probably then, then also Proof of Stake somehow. Because it's mathematics, right, at the end of the day. Yeah, but then comes the game theory. And anticipating every attack vector and every legal threat to any mm. participant. So if you say Coinbase now controls like 10% of all staking, so Coinbase will get all the revenue. Of course, they distribute it to the, yeah, to to the, the, users, to the customers, yeah. no. but they're fully legal. If they get a subpoena by a court in the US, they will follow mm. that. And once you have like this regulatory capture, the system for me loses all usability because then we just have the current fiat system.
Well, it would still be rooted in the tokenomics of the project, right? It's still, it's not like they can just add, you know, like more coins or something, because that's a big part of the value of cryptocurrencies. Well, that's something else, because you don't know how many ETH will be there in one year. That's to be decided by the stakers. And once a few companies control the majority of the stake, which they can eventually without ongoing cost, once they have it, you'll never get it back because they are the ones that get the new coins. So there's like always the one, the people that have the most coins today will have even more tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's the main difference between proof of work, because you always need to put in more energy. And if you stop paying for your energy, you're out. Ah, like, okay. But that's the difference. Okay. You say once you have that stake, you don't really have to do much more and you just be, you float somehow and it's hard to get it back. Okay. Yeah. Because the other way around, you could also say if you have the mining pools and all this mining power, you also have the same control. But yeah. Okay. Another one I've seen, or this was new, is a study that was saying about the e-waste because obviously it's like this race to have more mining power because it's the hash rate goes up. It's a competitive field. And that causes like a lot of electronic waste. A transaction is almost like breaking two iPhones. Yeah, I've heard that. That's, That's what ridiculous. They were saying. Imagine you would have to, I mean, it's a good image to think, you know, like you've seen this in the movies when like the drug dealer is using yeah, yeah. the phone once and throws it away. And to make a transaction, apparently, according to a study, which obviously I didn't check, et cetera, but it has been published that they're scientifically done, is saying that. How do you feel about that? I think it's ridiculous. First of all, like putting any cost, being energy or e-waste or anything to a transaction is total bullshit because transactions have no correlation to the actual energy or hardware spent. The hardware and the electricity is needed to create new blocks and they are created whether there are transactions or not having a lot of transactions or even having like a lot of lightning transactions on top of the base layer transactions have no effect and no correlation to the actual energy spent. And what I also heard, but I also did not check the study myself, is that the study basically failed on so many levels, but I cannot really go into the okay. specific because I didn't read it. The thing is that in the very beginning, miners aged very quickly because there was like a lot of progress and they were outdated very quickly. That's no longer the case. So okay. even today, depending where you live, a miner has a time span of one and a half, two, even three years. And that's probably longer than your laptop or any server that you run in a data center. Also, really? if you compare like Bitcoin energy consumption with gold mining, it's like night and day. So every year like the co2 and the energy in form of like gasoline that goes into gold mining is a multitude of bitcoin so singling out bitcoin for stuff like that just feels like very disingenuous mm -hmm. i think it's because it could be theoretically changed easily you know what i mean yeah but that would not be bitcoin that's the point all these people assume that bitcoin without proof of work is the same it's not I would like actually to talk with you now about Shift Crypto mm -hmm. and the Bitbox and the Bitbox app. And people may, might know, I guess the biggest hardware wallet out there is Ledger at the moment, a French company. And there's Trezor, a Czech company or... Yeah, I think so. And then we have Bitbox from Switzerland, yes. open source. In this environment, how do you position yourself? So you mentioned our competitors. And they make really good products, very secure products. So everything we do, and I think we do as well or better as them, is already on a high level. So I think having a hardware wallet at all is more important than actually deciding which one to get. The Bitbox, I think, is just more minimal. It's a lot easier to use. We don't have as many coins, for example, as Ledger. We don't have as many confusing options. Everything you need is there, we think. And of course, you can use it with other wallets. But I think the Bitbox really is the harder wallet to get and gift to your parents, for example. For people new to the space, it's just like super easy to get started. 
and know that your coins are secure. So that's the usability. I think we're doing a really good job. The app, there's no ads. We don't shill you any new coins and stuff like that. Simple, clean, easy to use. But from a technical perspective, I think we also have technical advantages because from a security perspective, there are two basic architectures you can follow. The one is use a secure chip like Ledger does, and they run their firmware in the device on a secure certified chip. But that means that part of the software cannot be open source. So you need to trust Ledger to do their job well and not be malicious, of course, which I would never claim they are, but it's just like there's trust involved mm -hmm. because nobody else can look at the code that actually runs on your ledger. And the other extreme is like Trezor does it, and I have deepest respect for the Trezor team. They're fully open source, but they don't have a secure chip. So that means that if you find a Trezor on the street and you know what you're doing, you have a semi-decent lab, for example, you can read out all the secrets of the device in five minutes. The secure chip is basically the hardware itself can be somehow looked into basically almost. Is that the security of the chip? So there are different kinds of chips. And what problem is there is no open source secure chip. So there's, that would be the holy grail. Mm -hmm. So what Trezor does is they use a general purpose chip like you find in a coffee machine to store all the stuff that is encrypted, but you can read that out because these chips are not meant to be used for security. Ledger, on the other hand, uses a secure chip that is purpose-built for being physically secure. So you would most likely destroy it if you try to access the information that is contained on the chip. Mm -hmm. But they are bound by non-disclosure agreements and blah, blah, blah. So they cannot publish the code. Even They probably would want to, but they can't. And what we did, the Bitbox contains both chips. So we do have a general purpose chip that runs all the code, which is fully open source, but we still use a secure chip without trusting it to physically harden the device. So if you find a Bitbox on the street, it's physically secure. But if you use the Bitbox just as a product, you know that we cannot be malicious, that it's like very secure and it's fully transparent how it works because everything is for open source. Mm -hmm. And for me, this combination is really unique and something that I value personally a lot. And we are here in the office of you. How many people are working at Shift Crypto at the moment? Depends a bit how you count because we're a remote first company. We hire internationally. We are a group of co-founders and in total, I would say we're about 15 people working for Shift Crypto. Yeah. And you make the money by selling physical devices or is there also like a subscription revenue or something like that? No. What we really do, we're very conservative hardware manufacturer. We're not a financial service. We didn't do an ICO. We have no token. So we, we really make money by selling our devices. And if you don't want to, we never hear from you again. Mm -hmm. There's no subscription. Even technically, your software or hardware never needs to call back home again. Oh, okay. And how much is the device? Like so the Bitbox, like if you look at it, it looks a little bit like a USB drive, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's a computer with a screen with a touch interface. You can put it directly into your Android smartphone because it has a USB-C plug or with every laptop, Mac OS, mm -hmm. Windows, Linux. And as this little computer, which keeps your keys secure, at the moment it's, I think, 139 euros, but that's it. So you'll get like future updates, everything, no subscription model. It's just you buy it and that's it. So it's not like even a high ticket price, so to say. You know, how much demand is there out there for hardware wallets? There's a lot. And I think it's growing a lot as well because mm -hmm. people are realizing more and more that not your keys, not your coins, especially with the attacks or the breakdown of Celsius yeah. and stuff like that. You know that, well, of course you can make a few percentage annually if you put your coins somewhere to work or whatever, but they're no longer your coins. So keeping them secure in the long term really needs, without trusting a third party, if you want to do that, you need a harder wallet. Mm -hmm. And where do you see like the potential of the company? Just I've done some research and I've figured out like a ledger did uh, raise some money last year, 
for a valuation of 1.5 billion US dollars. Yes. So they raised like 300 million and they probably have like, I don't know, this I didn't check, but probably a thousand people or so mm -hmm. working there. Not even, I think it's about 300 or 300, so. but they're quite bigger yes. than you guys. What is the vision? Do you want to become, go in that direction as well? Or do you keep it like small and nimble? We are happily self-funded, 100%. We don't have any external investors and we would like to continue with that, building more conservatively, sustainably. I think if you really want to grow a company very fast and put it on a stock market, you need to have a lot of working capital. But that also means that you're running a high risk of running out of capital. And that's mm -hmm. not the best thing for your customers as well. If there's an ongoing risk that we're just running out of money. And for us, we're very happy where we are. We're constantly looking to expand in other markets. And if there are partners that we can do that with, that's awesome. But we're not really looking to sell the company to or like raise a lot of money or stuff like that. When you say other markets, you mean like... Uh, geographical markets. Geographical, yeah. okay. But why do you need partners for that? Just for the logistics to send them out or to produce the device? No, it's or? just like strategic partnerships, for example, if you have somebody that has a financial offering, mm -hmm. but does that with hardware from us. Of course, that helps us a lot in penetrating a market that we are yeah. not very strong at at the moment. But we already do sell internationally. We do have our own warehouse, for example, in the European Union, so we can ship without importing stuff for the whole EU. Everything else is shipped out of Switzerland directly. Mm -hmm. We got that covered, but it's more about mindset and getting the word out. And the users, who are the users who need such a hardware wallet? I mean, I have hardware wallets. I don't have the Bitbox yet. I hope to maybe take one home today <laughs> <laughs> to test it. But is it more like retail people or could it also be used in an institutional setup? We are building the Bitbox for individuals, but of course there's a huge overlap between individuals and businesses. It's just what we are building it towards too. But the Bitbox is actually one of the best hardware wallets to use in a multi-sig setup. If you mm -hmm. want to have distributed responsibility or distributed signing devices. One issue that I encounter sometimes with Ledger is you have to install apps if you have different kind of coins that you want mm -hmm. to use. And it has so little space yes. that it's like you run out of space quite quickly after, let's say you have three or four apps, mm -hmm. you're already screwed. Is that a differentiator as well? It's maybe I'm not the only one who has this issue. Yeah, you don't need to do that with the Bitbox. But to be fair, we also don't support as many coins as Ledger does. I think the need to install apps and remove them again to install another app is mainly rooted in their usage of a secure chip because mm -hmm. these are super limited in terms of storage and what mm -hmm. you can actually install. We don't have that limitation because we use the secure chip in a different way. We can install or have a run the firmware on a more generous chip that has lots of more space while still having the device physically secure. But can you use it in with, let's say, MetaMask, for instance? <laughs> MetaMask is a very special point. Yes, technically, potentially, yes. We actually wrote the whole code for MetaMask, but they did not merge it, unfortunately, because they are building a hardware wallet integration plugin system, but they are building since two years and it's still not out. So I'm not quite sure. I mean, they have a shitload of money and tons of engineers, but it seems like hardware wallets are not really a priority for them. Mm. I guess they're busy making money with other stuff. But there's, for example, at Rabbi, the MetaMask fork, Rabbi. And okay. I'm not sure if you know that, Rabbi.io, no, Rabbi yeah. which is fully feature compatible with MetaMask. And they're more progressive. They're building more towards like these security systems mm -hmm. and the Bitbox works with Rebbe and every site that has MetaMask interface you can actually use with Rebbe. All right, cool. Well, where can people find you, Stadikus? What so, is the best way to get in touch with you? Myself, personally, I'm mostly on Twitter. Stadikus3000 is my handle. DMs are always open. I'm happy to learn more about mm -hmm. from your listeners. For the Bitbox and Shift Crypto, our company, it's shiftcrypto.ch, which CH stands for Switzerland. 
Some people thought it would mean China, but that's not <laughs> the point. We actually design, develop, and produce the Bitbox in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And shiftcrypto.ch is the place to learn more about it. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me, it's also you, the listener. And each day, there are more listeners joining, and together we can spread the word about DeFi by giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episodes and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at defiremoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.